Startup Grind Columbus is a monthly event to educate and inspire entrepreneurs. We actively live Startup Grind's global community values of give first, help others, and make friends. Startup Grind Columbus is made possible by our lead partners, AWH, builders of exceptional digital products that drive business for growth companies and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com Columbus to see a list of upcoming events and to see videos from our past events. Now, onto this month's event podcast. I am Ryan Frederick. This is Startup Grind. This is a monthly event to help educate and inspire entrepreneurs and people who are thinking about taking the entrepreneurial journey who or who um, who have. We um, get together typically the second Monday of every month, although the next month it's going to be on a Wednesday because of some scheduling. So it'll be April 12th next month. And it's going to be Bill Balderaz, who's an entrepreneur, advisor, and investor in town. So looking forward to that one. We're also going to be doing one as part of Startup Week. It's going to happen on May 9th. It's going to be Jeff Harper, who is the founder and CEO of a company called Duet Health that sold to MedData about a year ago, I guess. So that one will be happening as part of Startup Week on May 9th. So that one also will not be the second Monday. That one's going to be on May 9th, which is a Tuesday. So forget the whole second Monday thing I said, because apparently that's a total lie. And the next two, at least, are not going to happen on the second Monday. But typically they do. Typically they happen here at Rev1. Thank you to the Rev1 people for allowing us to come in once a month and, and do this and sort of take over. There's a bunch of Rev1 people in the back. If you don't know what Rev1 does and you want to know, talk to the Rev1 people. Matt Verisur is back there. Mike McCann is back there. Shannon was back there. Charles Hill's back there bobbing up and down, pretending not to be seen. Dan Bruno's back there. So a lot of Rev1 people, if you want to talk to somebody about Rev1. My firm also sponsors AWH. We're a digital products firm. We help companies build great digital products and to be great at building them. Whereas I saw Rick from GBQ, G, uh, Rick from GBQ, accounting, tax, audit, and fraud. If you need those kinds of things, talk to Rick from GBQ. Heartland Bank is a sponsor. So if you need some place to put your money, talk to Mike from Heartland Bank. Daryl, where's Daryl? King Memory. Daryl. Daryl, would you like to say anything? Are you still looking to hire the entire city of Columbus for your team? Awesome. Um, I think. I don't know what to say to that. I'm, I'm typically not speechless, but Daryl can often make me speechless. So Alex Brown from Dickens and Wright. So Alex, is no beer tonight? Do you have somewhere to go? Okay. Good choice then. Good choice. So Alex from Dickens and Wright. If you need legal advice, talk to Alex and the team from Dickens and Wright. I think that covers it from a sponsor perspective. We've also got some of our team from AWH here. My partner Chris is in the back consuming pizza and drinking beer. Apparently he has no place else to go after this. Robin and Caitlin were checking everybody in. So you met Robin and Caitlin when you were checking in. They're part of our team at AWH. I need to do a shout out for IC Stars, nonprofit digital skills training program that we're a part of and we brought to, to town. It operates out of Rev1. We have our first public event happening as part of the first cycle. It's on April 27th. If you go to the IC Stars page or go to Eventbrite and search Technology Inclusion Summit, yeah, we gave it a fancy name. We couldn't come up with anything less. So sounds really complicated. There'll be some good stuff there. 
experts talking about how to create more diversity and inclusion in tech startups and at corporations. So check that out. We'd appreciate your support for that. Yes, without further ado, I think that we are there. Joe, you ready? Ready, sir. Thanks for patiently waiting. Joe from Prior Auth Now, please welcome him. Sorry, we have like a, I feel like every month I have a, a litany of more shit to get through at the beginning before we can actually talk. Fair enough. Well, hopefully it's all good stuff today. No ugly secrets here? No, I don't have any ugly secrets, do you? No. Okay. So what's the deal with, with the V-necks versus crewnecks? <laughs> right out of the gate, huh? Uh, uh, no, I, it, it's, it's really a sign of me just have a tendency to overdo things. Do you like your, do you like your chest? Do you like the way your chest looks? I, I do have a manly chest, but no, I'm kidding. I, I, honestly, true story, I was at Target and knew that we were going to be doing this thing and was, was certainly shopping very economically and saw the shirt I liked, and I bought 10 of them. And it's just kind of a thing I do, whether it's a good song I drive into the ground or uh, a good movie I watch 50 times. I bought 10 different colors of the shirt. Literally, there was nothing behind it. But uh, apparently, people started to notice and that I always wore V-neck shirts. And now it's become this thing where you're asking me about a V-neck shirt in front of however many people here at Startup Grind. So, but no, it, it really is nothing more behind it other than just trying to be economical all the time, as well as I don't like to think when I wake up, just put on a shirt and go. But the sport coat looks fairly expensive. Well, so you're picking and choosing where you're spending your money <laughs> on your wardrobe. Fair enough, fair enough. But it, it, you, I was taught early on you should accessorize. So $5 shirt, 200 sports jacket. <laughs> It makes, it, makes, it makes the $5 shirt look a little more dressed right. up. Right, so you, you still get to a $1,000 outfit, right? That's it's just, right. You know, one That's piece right. of it is, is only $5. That's right. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they all showed up to hear about my wardrobe. Well, so. Hannah told me that I had to ask about it. So well, when, it, when we agreed to do this, Hannah said, you have to ask him about the V-neck shirt versus crew neck shirt thing. So well, I it, felt it, obligated. It, yeah, but it literally didn't, it started out as nothing, and now it's something because it's on the website, and we're talking about it here. But I... I <laughs> I just, uh, there's nothing, there's nothing to say about it anymore. Literally nothing to say. It's dead. But I still have some more questions around Can I, Ryan? I... Okay, we're going to move on. So one of the things that when we got together last week that we talked about that, that I fundamentally wholeheartedly believe, and, it, and it's kind of a base concept that, that you have. So I want to spend a few minutes diving into it and understanding and talking about it, which is this concept of is a founder and an entrepreneur and just sort of generally with the company just kind of fall in the right direction you're not it's not going to be perfect you're never going to make perfect decisions thing you know but just sort of generally head in the direction of getting it mostly right and you're probably going to at least have some positive progress that you can feel good about. Yeah, so th this is something I actually stole from somebody else who, and, and you'll find a common theme with me. A lot of this stuff I'm not smart enough to make up. I just have found a way to take the goodness of what a lot of, our, a lot of other people have already figured out and find a way to reuse it. And, and this is certainly one of them, which... I was talking with a person who has successfully rolled out products that literally hundreds of millions of people have used. And one of the things he said was, or one of his great annoyances was when people stand up and, and, and talk about how, 
you know, their strategy or their laser focus on a particular area was the reason for it. And he said, that's all kind of just BS. He said, literally what you need to focus on is falling in the right direction. And what I mean by that is you're never going to have all the perfect answers, right? But you need to look at the data and you need to figure out, you know, and quite frankly, one of the things they call me in the office is ready, fire, aim, right? And, and a lot of it is because I, I tend to look at the data, but I'm very action-oriented. And the way I justify my action is I'm not trying to get all the questions right. I just want to be directionally right so that I can get up quickly, make some more decisions, and hopefully fall over in the right direction. But if you continue to you know, assess the data you have and be action-oriented in the sense of you know you're at least falling in the right direction, you know, we, we tend to focus and learn a lot from the data that, that comes in. And a lot of it is not sitting around and overanalyzing things to the point where we're unsure what to do. We tend to make, you know, calculated risks, but generally subscribe to a philosophy of so much as we're generally falling in the right direction, we'll have the speed and the versatility to get up again and continue to do that. And if we do that, we ultimately think that we'll outpace the competition and ultimately be where we want to be at the end of the day. So shout out, shout out to Darren. So Darren Young is the guy who does the, the sound. The sound sounds fantastic tonight, by the way. Um, better than normal. So whatever you did, I like it. It's good. Sounds awesome. Kita does, so, you know, yeah, I sort of have to give love to Kita. Kita's over here. He does our video, runs the camera for us. I'll judge you on how good this video looks and how, I good, how good I look on it, okay? So I've got to sort of reserve judgment. Okay, right, add some filters. So why do you think you're an entrepreneur? Why are you not normal? Why are you wired to do this? Well, I, I mean, if you just bubble it up to the, a 50,000 foot level, I, I generally don't like to be told what to do. And I've, since a child, I've, and now that I have children myself, my daughter has inherited that very Yeah, feature. how's that working out for you? <laughs> She's the pistol for sure. But honestly, I, I, I've always just wanted a sense of freedom in that, you know, if someone tells me to go life or someone tells me to go left, I'm automatically going to go right. And being an entrepreneur just basically gives me a vehicle to express myself and be able to, to do what I want to do, but also be responsible for that. And it just, it fits, it fits me as a person. I feel I'm not, I can't draw, I, have, I can't sing. I'm actually one of the worst singers you've ever heard. But I, I get a, just a sense of joy out of coming to work every day. Uh, and it's not even work for me. It's just being able to be with a group of people who we share a same goal and really bring them together that, you know, to achieve something we couldn't do individually. And, you know, for me, it, it, a lot of it started, you know, just by if I wanted to do this, I was able to do that. Early on, I had to deal with the fact that if it was not the right decision or, or it was a mistake, I dealt with the consequence. But... I never took myself too seriously, so a lot of what the decisions I made early on, I was able to learn from, and I didn't get down on myself, or you know, I just chalked it up, well, never done that before, and, and, and certainly would uh, learn from the experience and, and learn from you know, the, the overall process of what I was trying to do. And again, I think you know, a lot of people, especially in today's day and age, startups and entrepreneurship has really been glamorized. I'll be the first to tell you there's nothing glamorous about the lifestyle. Quite frankly, it can be a very lonely place a lot of time. I mean, I've got some great friends that I haven't seen in a while who are here that I haven't seen in a very long time because I've been focused on my family and work. And for me, those two things are 
take up about all the passion I have in life, but they're, I'm, I'm, I'm fulfilled in that, so it just it makes me feel very good. Your, your friends appreciate you saying that. <laughs> I uh, saw, I, I waked over that table over Yeah. <laughs> so the way that Darren has, has the sound you know, really happened tonight. Do you do you want to take a little, you know, minute and, and sing a little? I already pretty? know you're going and you're, absolutely you're, you're, not. you're probably not as bad at singing as you think you are. No, I assure so, you. So, you know, do you want to take like 30 seconds and do a little something? I do not. Okay. I will not. So, absolutely. I, 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 honestly, I, but the thing is, is I, I, have been, like, I have been known to sing though. So if you ask my family in the other corner, they'll be the first to tell you that I'm not ashamed or scared of singing. It just, they didn't come here to hear awful vocals, so. I don't know. Do you guys want to hear Joe sing a little number for like 30 seconds? Yeah. So I, 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 think, the peop- I think the people have spoken. Oh, man. All right. Well, I, 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 like, turn- I like to set the bar high, so I I'm going to do a little Whitney Houston. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, I will always okay. love you. There you go. I set the bar high. That that wasn't terrible. That wasn't terrible. You have a good sound guy. Yeah, no, that wasn't terrible. Uh, Thanks for the auto tune. (laughs) So that was not on the questions. It was not on the questions. Sorry. So what is prior auth now? What do you guys do? What value do you provide? What problem are you solving? What value do you provide? Let's talk about the biz. Yeah, sure. So um, when you look at healthcare as a whole. Um, if you spend five minutes in it, you, you quickly will see that there's about 500 problems to solve in the area of, of healthcare. For us, we started out very early on. We actually weren't a prior authorization company. My co-founder out there, Amol Aurora, when we first got together, it was more about price transparency and, and more and more of the revenue was coming directly from the patient. You know, 20 years ago, when you saw your physician, you handed them the uh, insurance card and you pay your copay and that was it. The doctor basically worked with the insurance company to get paid from that point forward. But we quickly found that prior authorizations were one of the biggest headaches in healthcare today. And for whatever reason, a lot of companies ran to the check-in moment. So there's a, it's a very crowded space in terms of automating the check-in, getting rid of forms and and clipboards and you know all the things that annoy you when you go see the doctor. And then there's also a, a you know litany of companies uh, relative to claims processing, which makes sense, right? That's where the money's at. That's where the companies went. Those are shark-infested waters, and that's not an area that um, we want to play. But what we found through research and, and really getting out there and talking with the target market that this thing called prior authorization really got left behind. I'm unsure how or why, but very thankful that it did. But the, the, the point is, is that whether or not, I'm sure many of you had procedures or surgeries out there today. When you go and the doctor says you need an MRI or a total knee surgery or shoulder surgery or whatever it may be, there's a process that happens behind the scenes that's a very manual process where the provider basically sends a form, faxes the form, waits for the insurance company to respond to ask for more clinical information, and the provider will then send back your patient information to prove that you actually need the procedure or surgery. A lot of that is done today via phone call and fax. The state of Ohio has tried to solve the problem by mandating all insurance companies create an online portal where you can submit the authorizations. But the problem with that is, is not only did they not solve the problem, they've made it worse. So now as a provider, you've got 50 different places to go to to submit an authorization. And for that very reason, most of them don't go via portal. 
So most payers only have about 20% uh, usage of their online platforms. So most of them fall back to what they commonly do, which is phone call and fax. The problem with that is, is that it's a very manual process. It takes the insurance companies a long time to respond. And oftentimes, it impedes on the care path for the patient. Meaning, if you don't get the authorization, the health, the, the hospital, surgery center, imaging center will actually cancel the procedure, reschedule it, and a couple of things happen. So the first, the patient gets upset, right? Because now you have this procedure and you made all these accommodations to go have it performed and they canceled it because of the fact that you didn't get a prior authorization. Or worse, and then you know, from a hospital's perspective, they cancel the procedure at last second, the OR, or the MRI machine goes unused. Hospitals care deeply about utilization. And then the third is, which is one of the more common ones, is they'll actually let the patient have the procedure. They'll go to file the claim and it'll get denied because you didn't have a prior authorization for that particular procedure. So what we've done is we've really created a transparent, a transparent process that automates the prior authorization. That was buzzword bingo. But what I'm really saying is we make, we've normalized the experience for the provider, meaning they now go to one spot to do all their authorizations. So instead of going to UHC or Aetna or Cigna or Medical Mutual, they go to one spot to do all the authorizations. We also provide transparency and get everybody speaking the same language. What I mean by that is the moment a prior authorization gets initiated, we replicate their request in real time and share it with the hospital. So oftentimes the hospital is piggybacking on the physician's prior authorization. So they care deeply about that. And right now it's a very manual process of passing that information back and forth. And then one of the surprises to us was how much payers got interested in what we were doing. Turns out we can be Switzerland. And what I mean by that is oftentimes providers and payers have some sort of contentious relationship. And we have found by solving the provider problem that we can also offer the insurance company some significant benefits i.e. most of the time we're reducing the administrative burden. If more things come in electronically, the payer needs less resources to be able to, hand, to handle the phone calls and faxes that come in relative to the prior auth process. So you stumbled upon it sort of by accident, right? And the, the company, Correct. this is sort of the third or fourth sort of run at something in the healthcare space. Correct. Right, so give us, give us the ones that led up to it and yeah. then let's talk about the so, tab moment. So I, one, one of the things that I used to get the business for around here was every Monday morning they used to have a, um, basically a, a deal meeting where they would check in on the status of the deal meeting. Well, we kept changing our name so frequently, they just put my name instead of the company name in their deal meeting so they could keep up with what we were doing. But, but the reason that was is because we just subscribed to, you know, we did things a little bit differently than most. You know, if you just look at the startup market in general, most of the time you have entrepreneurs who find a problem, who will put it into a pitch deck, who will go pitch to a VC, who will get money, who will build a product, and who will try and see if the world wants it. Well, through some great advice very early on, we went directly into a lean validation model whereby we built out a high-fidelity prototype. And the prototype was predominantly around price transparency as well as the, the whole payment process. So. A high-fidelity prototype, we basically built out with no back-end. But if you looked at it, in fact, if I showed you guys right now, you would never know that there's nothing behind it. But I, I, really, all it is is a bunch of images that show the end user what the experience is actually going to be like. So we actually took this high-fidelity prototype out 
I had basically had an advantage over most in the fact that my partner is a physician. Um, we were also affiliated with Ohio Health early on, and they helped us get access to different physician practices. But we just had access to our target market, and we took full advantage of it. So we took this, this product that, if you ask some people around Love One, they'll say that it absolutely sucked. I don't think it sucked, but it solved a purpose, just not a great purpose. But we took it out, and we got the feedback, which was, eh, it's okay. Um, and one of, the, one of the things that really changed the trajectory of us was, I still remember to this day, we were putting together the prototype, and we had always known prior authorizations were part of the process to the, the problem of payments that we wanted to solve. But we were in a design, it was me and another, another uh, person who's not here, Ted, and we were debating back and forth whether or not we make prior authorization a tab on the UI or we put it as a field in a dropdown. So think about that. So what we were arguing over was where to put the prior authorization piece. And we ultimately decided to make it a tab. So when I took the high fidelity prototype out, I would show the front office staff, rev cycle, patient access, and they would say, yeah, you're, what you're doing is okay, but can you click on that prior authorization tab? And I'm like, I can't, it's just a prototype, we don't have it wired up. And they're like, yeah, but that's the big problem. And I'm like, well, I can't click on it, there's nothing there, right? And I'm like, so get back to what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this really cool price transparency thing, and they're like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but that's the big problem. And uh, after about 50 times hearing that they wanted me to click on this stupid tab, that was not even supposed to really be there. I, I, I remember going back to a mole and, and, and saying, if we don't do this, somebody else is going to. But, but think about that for a second. Had we put prior authorization as a field within a dropdown, I probably never would have clicked on the dropdown and the user would have never had the opportunity to say, click on that tab. So it's, it's weird how little things like that, the stars kind of align for us because we weren't smart enough to know that prior authorization was the thing. Right? We, just, we just didn't know it. But because we subscribed to a process that really got us out there talking with the target market, the end user told us the thing, which is, it's prior authorization, stupid. It's nothing else. That is what we are getting killed with right now. And again, had we put it in that dropdown, I'm telling you, we would not be sitting here today because I never would have clicked on it. And the providers never would have said, hey, what about that prior authorization tab? So you got signed customers and you were able to get investment right, before you actually had a real workable product. So that, that's kind of the holy grail for a lot of founders, right, is before they, they invest too much, right, and build something that might miss the mark, right, can you go to acquire customers, and then can you go to and get investment, and can you get people to believe in the problem that you're trying to solve and your ability to solve it? How did you ultimately do that? Because for many, it becomes very elusive. Yeah. So that process that we subscribed to, right? So when we found out prior authorizations was the thing, we, we continued to eat our own dog food. So instead of running out, hiring a bunch of engineers and building this prior authorization thing that we had no clue how it worked or what to do, we again went immediately to, well, let's build out some wireframe. Let's get the flow. Let's build out the wireframes. Let's put it in a prototype. So we literally built a high fidelity prototype of the prior authorization experience. And when we took it out, of course, the first one we took out, they're like, what the heck is that? I said a solution for prior authorizations. I'm like, well, it's our first stab at it, right? What is wrong? And one of the things that I had to do early on was learn how to be a listener. Oftentimes, I go into sales meetings or any meeting, really, and I want to try and dominate the conversation, dominate the room. Yeah, I've noticed. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Um, but when you're taking a product out and you're trying to actually get product feedback, if you don't shut up, you're going to miss the goodness of that moment. 
And it was very hard for me to not talk and just basically be, have a very vulnerable moment and let these people pick apart your product. But I did, and because it was just a high-fidelity prototype, I didn't have to you know, go back to the office and try and explain to the engineers or you know, get it into some sort of card that they would pull off. It was just a high-fidelity prototype. So I was able to iterate very quickly on the feedback that they were telling me, what was wrong, why the flow was wrong, what the feature functionality should be. And I really just got into this you know, crazy, efficient iteration process where I would take it out, get the feedback, and I'd come back and I'd redo it and I'd take it out again. And um, the first time I took it out, they hated it, right? It wasn't right. But after the 75th time, I took it out and I would show them, literally, it was probably closer to 100 iterations. And we did that amount of iterations, by the way, in probably 90 to 120 days. So not a huge amount of time, even though there was a lot of iterations. But I would take it out and they would say, I want that. And I'm like, you want what? I'm like, it's a prototype. And they're like, no, I want that. Leave that here. I want to use that. And I'm like, I can't. It's a prototype. There's nothing behind it. Like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but it's working, right? And I'm like, no, it's not working. It's a prototype. So I said, but what you can do is you can sign this MSA, and when we build it, you can be one of the first customers. So we actually used that prototype that had zero back end to get signed customers, not IOUs, not, you know, hey, it looks great. Call me when it's built. It is sign on the dotted line. I want to use this thing. So we then used those signed contracts to then to, to, to leverage a seed round, which we went out and raised money, hired some engineers. And at that point, you know, we sort of knew what to build. And I think one of the points I'll make is the prototype only gets you so far as we learn, you know, kind of the second half of the story, which is the prototype had the right experience, but, you know, showing a demo to somebody and getting a fully functioning product out the door that actually solves all the different permutations relative to the process is way different. So it was, it was exciting for me because I'm like, oh my gosh, I know something the world wants. And then I realized how hard it was to build the damn thing and, and how hard it was to translate that to people who are going to build the damn thing because I certainly wasn't going to build it. But, it, you know, that, that particular process, I think, was a recruiting tool for us. It, it showed that, you know, you'd be working on a product that people actually care about. We certainly used it to our advantage when we went to raise money that we had the fact that we had signed contracts and that, you know, I'm not, I'm not out looking for, I'm not money looking for a problem. I'm a product that needs money to execute. And, and we stuck to that story, and you know we're, we're at the point now where we've got a full-fledged team helping us build this out and scale it all across the U.S. And even though you ha- you had such great traction and and success with the prototype, when it transitioned to being the first first version of the product that you re- released, it's interesting that you shared with me that you were sort of reluctant to release it because you were sort of ashamed of how imperfect it was. So how did you ultimately get to a place of, if not comfort, at least willingness and being okay with releasing a product that you didn't feel you know, wonderful about? Yeah, I think the, the hardest thing for me was I, I could see it, like I, I had a moment where I'm like, it just has never been more clear on what we should do. And I had it in my mind, I was already five steps out, but I had to rewind the tape and get everybody else to step one and step two. And it was very difficult for me to, especially in the beginning before I had some help, to try and translate that into workable tasks. Because again, in my mind, I was already the next 15 things we're gonna do. I was already on the third iteration of the product before we even had a product out to market. So we had immense pressure from investors, 
I mean, think about customers, right? We had signed contracts before the product was been built. I mean, literally every month, customers were calling in saying, we're ready, we're ready. I, I mean, I think, Brett, you can remember we had you know, people emailing saying, we're literally drowning. Can you please get us the product? And there was nothing we could do. We were still months away. So you know, every month, I was bringing out my cane and top hat, dancing around to the customer, saying, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. But there's a difference between you know, building something that looks great and you know, that you can look at and be proud of as opposed to you know, doing, you know, subscribing to a development process so that you're building an application that's set up for scalability. And I think one of the hardest things about a non-technical founder is the fact that so much really great work is happening behind the scenes and you just don't know it. All you see is the UI. So your eyes go to the UI. My product's the UI. Even though you have a great engineering team who is building you know, a platform that's going to be able to scale with us as we continue to scale this thing out. And we, we didn't get to see that. So what I saw was a product that was 20% of what I wanted it to be. But I also had the pressure of investors saying, you need to get this thing out. Why is it taking so long? I had customers saying, we want the product. And then I had you know, some great advisors and, and product people and engineers within the own company saying, dude, it's an MVP, minimal viable product. But when, you're, when it's your baby and it, it came from nothing, it's, it is very hard to, to, to put something out there that you don't think you know, puts your best foot forward. And, but the, on the flip side is once we, once we pushed it out, the feedback was phenomenal, right? I mean, we had, I, I, I thought it was terribly ugly. It was functional. Grandma, I see you looking at me. It was functional. And, uh, but it was, it was ugly. <laughs> but people love to work on it. And, and I think that's the moment where my mind kind of switched to, you know, I, I'm, I'm going, you know, my job is to think three, four, five steps out. But I, I need people like our engineering team and our business people to, to be able to, you know, put the foundation in place that will allow us or give us the right to do the next three, four, five iterations. And, you know, the, the things we learned early on from that launch were just incredible. You could never have dreamed up the stuff we learned from that. And if we, if, if, if we had held back and waited another two months, we were just making really bad assumptions that we'd have to fix later. So it, it was the hardest thing I had to do because, I A, you know, you're just nervous in general. You actually have somebody other than you using the product and you want it to work right. And then, B, you know it's not everything you actually want it to be. And then C, you have people who build this thing who actually want it out there because they want to see what happens, right? They, we, you know, we have to be able to you know, you know, see the fires and put out the fires. So we, we learned more than, you know, the prototype was one thing, but launching that early and with you know, the bare bones and, 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 and getting out of this, let's make an assumption and build it to be wrong was, was, was key to our early success, which was just get it out there and let's learn from the data. Well, I think it's how you know you're solving a high-value problem, right? If people will sign agreements and invest based upon a prototype, that's one validation that you're solving a high-value problem. When you release a product that you know isn't complete, isn't as good as you'd want it to be, right? But yet customers are saying, just give us the damn product, right, so we can at least begin uh, helping affect the problem, and then we'll help you evolve the product. That's how you know you're solving a high-value problem. Right. Yeah, well, it also didn't hurt that we were competing against a fax machine, right? So, I mean, we, we, I, I, I say that, but there was, there, you know, that, that's bubbling up the problem. But, but honestly, a lot of this was just getting off of the manual processes. And um, we had multiple validation points along the way. So that, that led to our confidence to continue to push and push. And again, 
you know, the, the, the data was, was so conclusive early on that the prior authorization was the problem. And the biggest shocker was that when we went into these places, we weren't ripping and replacing anything. There was nothing there, right? It was, it was somebody who had been doing this for 30 years who contained everything in a spreadsheet, right? And, and here we show up with this modern workflow that we're automating this and automating that. And, you know, to them it was just complete goodness. So, you know, getting out of the it has to be perfect early on because the minute you make assumptions and prior authorizations are the moment you make a bad assumption because there's just so many different permutations. So for example, one of the things that we did early on that every SaaS company has issues with is pricing. How the heck do I price the daggone thing, right? And one of the early assumptions we made, I don't know if you guys have probably seen the, the Kevin commercials, you know, you get paid when I get paid, right? So we, we, we took a chapter out of his playbook and said, this would be great. We'll go to the hospitals and we'll tell them. Hey, he's not a sponsor. Don't talk about oh, it. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> we'll, we'll basically say, we're only gonna charge you for approvals. Right? That's great. So if our software does its job, you get your approval, you're going to pay us a transaction fee. Right? Seems brilliant. We're all high five and this is great. This, we're going to make billions of dollars on this pricing strategy. So we launched the product very early on. Why is it whenever the thought and conversation is we're going to make billions of dollars, wrong. we're almost always wrong? <laughs> Fair enough. You, you, you have to go through it, though, to because to, you, you, you just, we're the best hype machines in the world. Entrepreneurs will hype themselves up to convince themselves to do anything. It's part of, you know, it's like the, your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. So we're like the greatest unvalidated hype machines in the world. And you sort of need those moments to help carry you through, right, For all sure. the shit times, right? For when sure. You, when you want to quit and you want to give up and it's too hard, right? You need those those moments of glimmer. It's like, well, if we just get this one thing right, we're going to make billions, right? Yes. I mean, it only, and then it lasts for 90 minutes and then you realize it's not going to make you billions. But at least for those 90 minutes, you felt really good about yourself. Yeah, the, the, we, we call it the, uh, we're doing too much internal high-fiving. We need to go out and validate some of the stuff we're high-fiving about. And we did, right? So we, we launched very early on. It was a transaction fee per approval. Well, we launched the product. We started looking at the data coming through. And because we had created such an easy-to-use experience relative to how to submit your authorizations, they were submitting everything. Because just the thought of getting denied or the thought of you know, uh, doing a procedure without an authorization was very scary to them. So they said, we're going to put everything through this thing now. So they did that. And we found that over 50% of the data running through our system was prior authorization not required. And we only get paid on approvals. So we had over 50% of the transactions running through our system we were not getting paid on, right? We also early on had hospitals come to us and say, look, I'll pay a transaction fee. Bye bye billions. Yeah, bye bye billions, right? Bye bye billions, bye bye thousands, right? <laughs> we weren't getting paid on over 50% of our transactions. And then we added in the fact that we added in a floor because they said the transaction fee makes sense for your high price procedures, but my labs, what you're charging me, my margin isn't even that on my low, you know, my low dollar labs. So like, great, anything under the floor, you guys can do for free. Anything over, you're going to pay me a transaction fee. And uh, they're like, this is great. Well, it turns out it's an unbelievable nightmare to try and figure out what's below that floor and over that floor. And then the biggest thing was is that we were very focused on providers, right? But Providers started to tell payers about what we were doing. And the payers started to come to us and they said, hey, we really like what you're doing. We think there's an opportunity to help us too. We're like, this is phenomenal, a two-sided sale, right? We're gonna double dip. We're gonna get paid by the provider and we're gonna get paid by the payer. And they said, yeah, we're, we're very excited to work with you. How do you get paid? And I'm like, oh, this is brilliant, you guys. 
we get paid a transaction fee on approvals. Like, we'll never do a deal with you. I'm like, why? Like, you are incented to game the system. We don't like the fact that you're putting a higher bounty on approvals. You have that pricing, we'll never do a deal with you. And they were right. I, I, we weren't even thinking about that. Quite frankly, we weren't even thinking at the, the payer when we implemented that pricing. But, you know, again, had we not launched early on and had we not, you know, figured out what the data was actually telling us, you know, we would have gotten some, you know, really bad contracts with some providers who do hundreds of thousands of transactions, and there we were not making a penny on more than half of them are running through the system. So that's what I was talking about earlier on when, you know, anytime you make an assumption in this business, you know, you, you better be careful how far you take it out because it can get you in trouble. I mean, think about, you know, we're still kind of living this today where, you know, our, our, our revenue should be higher than this today, but we signed annual contracts with the customers on this, you know, per approval basis that we're digging our way out of. Now, luckily, we're providing significant value to those customers, and we don't, you know, we've already proven that we can go back and redo these deals so that they're more beneficial to us. But it, it was a tough moment when we're like, why is everything coming back not required? And the customer was loving it. Like we'd send, we, we built this billing system and we were sending like one bill out. And we're like, this is horrible, right? But again, it's, it's, it's early, it's learning from the data, and it's, and it's, again, we were directional. Transactional is right. We were able to get people to sign big deals with us. Just turns out what the transaction we were charging for was wrong. But again, we were directional, so we fell down got back up, refixed it, and I'm sure there'll be other scary things around the corner that will come out and say boo. But again, as long as we continue to be directional, we continue to get up faster than everybody else and, and continue to push forward. So you've obviously built a pretty good team. You've got two of, of and I'm sure everybody in the team is are, are wonderful people. You've got two of my favorite people with Blackwell and Hannah, and Hannah's you know lovely faces over there smiling at us and, and staring at us. So proximity is really good for this comment. So talk a little bit about your team, where you are, sort of where you see going with the team. Where are you now? Where do you see this, the team sort of evolving over the next sort of year to 18 months? Yeah, so I was kind of... I was kind of shocked that Rev1 let me come in here, seeing that we stole a few people from that. I, didn't, I wasn't sure if that was uh, taboo, but nonetheless, we're at the process now where we're kind of transitioning from a stage one startup to a stage two startup. And what I mean by that is, you know, the stage one is I'm really kind of the, the doer in chief, right? Doing everything I can to just kind of get the lights on. I'm doing sales, I'm doing marketing, I'm doing accounting, I'm doing product, you know, I was doing all kinds of stuff. And then we slowly started to, 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 you know, to build out a team. And you know, where we're at now, which is you know, I'm moving to more of a true CEO role where we hire people to own these different areas and replace myself in a lot of these areas. And I'm moving more to a, you know, a trust and verify as opposed to doing everything myself. You know, it was, you know, early on, it was great, right? I had you know, somebody I'd been working with closely on the product in Blackwell. It was also a great selling point, the fact that you know, there's a lot of companies that come through here and, you know, a very senior person in this company saw enough value in what we're doing early on that he decided to jump to the company. So, you know, me being the, you know, the opportunist that I am, I'd sold the hell out of that to everybody, right? I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a, again, a directional sign that we're doing the right thing. And, and, you know, those early hires are key, right? Then, then engineers started to get more interested because we now had a proven product person, right? And then when you get, you know, a good engineer, you know, other people want to work with good engineers. So it's kind of this, this network effect that we had, and, and we just used it to our advantage. I was also lucky that we had, you know, one of our investors, NCT, 
they made us realize how important culture was very early on. Quite frankly, right after we did the seed round, I think we were still a company of four or five people. And I remember NC2 telling us how important culture was at that moment. I'm thinking, culture? There's four of us in a small room trying to keep the lights on. Who the hell needs culture? But they were exactly right. We, we went through a, a day working session with them, something called the Rockefeller Habits, where you know, we, we just really understand how important culture is, making sure that the company has a mission, uh, and that we have you know, both quarterly, annual objectives, three to five year objectives, a BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal that the whole company is striving for all the time. And you know, quite frankly, you know, doing that early on was one of the best things we ever did. It really helped people understand kind of who we were. And these weren't core values that I sat in a room and created. We, we really kind of looked around the room and said, you know, what does it mean to work here? What's the makeup of this place? Because as, as many of you know, when you're in a startup, I mean, there's days where you're running around with your hair on fire and you have no idea what's going to happen and tension's high and everybody cares deeply about what's going on. And the fact that you have this foundation of these core values is key. And, and, and how you know they're working is, I mean, there's probably not a day goes by that somebody doesn't in the office quote one of our core, one of our core values. Right now, a lot of it's around powering through, right? If you can get done today, don't wait till tomorrow. But this isn't stuff that we mandate. This is just stuff that it genuinely reflects who we have on the bus. Um, one of the other things that you know, many people have said that you know, one of the few things I did right early on was hire someone to manage culture, right? I think a lot of companies will talk the game of we have this great culture and we do these, you know, we, ha we, ha we have core values and we've got goals and we've got you know, kind of the company North Star. But you know, one of our very early hires was to manage the culture, like literally like the culture police, right? So if I wasn't upholding that or somebody else wasn't, we had somebody there to, to make sure that, you know, we, you know, we, we kind of got back in line. So I, I, put, I put my money where my mouth is in terms of I made culture important and, and, and I put people in place to make sure that it stayed consistent and persistent through all the craziness. So I, I've realized more now than ever before because we have market validation, we have product validation, we have pricing validation, we have all of that, right? The thing, the thing that our greatest risk is, can we get the right people on the bus and get them in the right seat? And so much of my time now is focused on you know, recruiting and bringing in true leaders, not managers. I want leaders. You know, a manager is not always a leader, but if you hire leaders, someone who, who leads the team, and you know, I'm talking about you know, someone who raises the bar, right? We are operating here, you bring this person in, and they push everybody in the company. They look at that person and say, wow, if I don't step up my game, they're going to make me look bad, right? And, and that's, the sort of, that's the sort of talent I want to surround myself, and that's the sort of talent that our team deserves, which is, you know, I haven't been a CEO for 10 years, right? So I rely on a lot of advisors. And one of the things that was consistent message amongst all my advisors was, your job is to create leaders. Outside of keeping the lights on, your job is to create leaders. And that starts by, you know, going out and hiring people that are going to push everybody, right? Everybody's game has got to rise up because the opportunity working on, you know, merits that. So I think, you know, I, I've really transitioned from, you know, it's very hard for me personally to step out and let somebody else do things. When things get, you know, rocky, I like to jump in and, and get my hands dirty. But, you know, I've, I, I'm, I'm out hiring the best possible people I can and I want to get out of the way and let them do their job and trust and verify, and eventually we'll turn it into trust. So I know it's, it's never been more clear for me what I should be focused on, which is 
you know, building the A-team. And, and it starts with the culture, it starts throughout the process, you know, it starts with, you know, getting the right people on and, and, and creating those leaders to which other people want to flock to because it's the right culture and you have people who are being pushed and they're continuing to grow and learn with inside the company walls. Yeah. Calvin, Calvin Cooper is here from NCT Ventures, so shout out to you guys for getting involved in, in, in supporting Joe and Pryoroth now. You're in the process of raising more money, more investment, and when I was over at the office last week, there were a couple of, of you know young strapping guys from Detroit Venture Partners in the office sort of poking around. I think it's, it's important for people to hear that you've gotten funding, obviously, right, to be able to get the to operate at this point, to be where you are, and now there are there are investors from outside of Columbus and outside of Ohio expressing interest, which is another validation of you're solving a high value problem. That investors from outside of the region are also interested in potentially being a part of. So talk about that for a minute, if you would, about you know the fact that that you're getting interest from investors and firms, you know, that, that, you know, are not, you know, just in our backyard. Yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's absolutely true. And I think, you know, part of it is it's, we're solving a problem that, you know, people are starting to take notice of, you know, there's been multiple validating events in the industry, especially recently that, you know, prior authorizations are a big problem, but, you know, a lot of what we did was just validating that our product, our strategy was one that could be a winning strategy. And one of the things that, that helped us is when we would go to these, you know, hospitals and whatnot, you know, I, I, I never hid the fact that we were a startup. You know, in my, in my previous company, I used to hide the fact that, you know, I tried to always make us look bigger than we actually were, which it was a mistake um, because I think a lot of people, A, just genuinely want to help out companies, especially if they think they're on the right track. And then B, when you begin to socialize, you know, kind of where you're at, you, it's, it's, you know, sometimes you'll lift up a rock and there'll be a, a, uh, a prize under there. And, and for us, one of the things that happened was we were talking to these large hospitals who, these huge health systems that happen to be LPs in, in large funds. So we actually had a few hospitals refer us to, you know, some, some pretty heavy healthcare IT investors on the coast. And that really broadened my horizons because I, you know, I, I'll, I'll never forget we were in Boston meeting with, you know, one of the hospitals we're trying to sign. And right when I left the meeting, they sent an intro to one of the biggest healthcare IT VCs in Boston. And I shot over there for an hour and he's like, hey, can you come back next week? So I flew back to Boston and, and gave him the pitch. And here I was, you know, from Columbus in an office in Boston with a, you know, very, very well-known and successful healthcare IT venture company that only invests in the business of healthcare. And here I am pitching this thing called Prior Auth Now that started in my in-law's basement. And now I'm in Boston, you know, pitching this to people who actually are wanting to give us, you know, a lot of money to scale this out. So, you know, I, I, I think I had a advantage that, again, I had multiple validating moments. So then I became very bullish, right? And then I would reach out to VCs and, and just say, you're going to want to hear this, right? This is one of those that you're going to want to know about. And, you know, I think that confidence reflected, you know, our, our early success. And I think that reflected, you know, how confident we were in our strategy and where we were going. But it also broadened my horizons because I can go into a DVP and say, this is why you should do, you should come in on this, right? And we're at the point now where, you know, we can actually sit back and, and find the right partner for us. Not just the first company that's looking to write us a check, but the right company. And, and I think it just, it speaks to the fact that, 
you know, we have something that we've proven the world once, and you know, now our risk is solely in execution. So when I go in, a lot of what I'm focusing on is, is, is just that, the execution side. And I think there's, there's more willingness than ever before. So I'll, I remember we were out in San Francisco about a month ago, and I was talking to a fund out there, and, and, and for someone to say this in the Bay, I thought was, was amazing, but they, they honestly said one of the hotbeds for startups they thought was Columbus, Ohio. I said, excuse me? And they said, no, I'm serious. We were looking at more and more companies right out of Columbus, Ohio. So I think, you know, just this event, you know, Rev1 and all the, you know, NCT and all the, I mean, I know I, I, some may know it more than others, but I think we are in, the, in a moment of where something special is happening. We don't even know it. Um, we're, we're building this ecosystem where people outside of this area are starting to take notice, which is going to benefit everybody, right? I mean, we've had, you know, one of, you know a, a phenomenal exit here recently that is only going to help investors get, become more and more intrigued. So I think, you know, when, when you're out looking at, if you subscribe to the right process and you're able to validate, you know, some of these important touch points along the way, you know, there's no reason why you can't go outside of Ohio very early on. You don't have to because of the ecosystem we're building here because a lot of the good money that's here. But should you want to or, 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 or require to in some scenarios, I think you should be very bullish on the fact that, you know, people are wanting to get into this community and want to invest in communities that are here because they're seeing the ecosystem that's being built. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm going to throw it out for questions. Darren's got a mic. He'll get you a mic if you raise your hand. Um, so that we can hear your question, and to the greatest extent possible, we'll get it on the audio. So if you have a question, raise your hand. Darren, we'll get you the mic. So what's top of mind for you as a CEO for the next uh, year, year and a half? Um, people. So, you know, my, my, it's never been more clear to me that, you know, I've got to replace myself in some of these roles uh, and bring on true leaders who are going to help, you know, bring the right people to this company. And then it's also reinforcing the culture. So making sure that as we grow, I mean, in December, we were, you know, I think we were less than 10 people in early December. And now we're at 22 people here at the beginning of March. So, you know, that growth is good. But if it's not managed correctly, you know, it takes one thing to start to, to infiltrate a culture and to ruin it. So, you know, my job, you know, primarily right now is around hiring. So we've, we, we're, we're currently in the process of, of raising around now. We're going to continue to add to the team. There's some holes that we need to fill. Implementing the culture. And I'm really working towards getting 50% of my time unbooked. Because what I want to do is I, want to, I don't want to be so much of an operator. You forget about the big vision. So I think there's a lot of areas where if I can get 50% of my time unbooked and focused on the strategy of growing the company, I think that, that ultimately is my goal. And that'll also make sure that I'm not overstepping my bounds. And when I hire leaders, I want to put them in the right spot and I want to get out of their way. I want to trust and verify. And if I can get to the point where 50% unbooked, I can focus on the strategy, on the company, and on the things I should be as a CEO, you know, again, I think uh, that, that's a step in the right direction. It's directional in getting the company ultimately where we want it to go. Can you can you hold this for a second? Yeah. I just noticed you you're so cool that your 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 boots aren't even tied. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm so hold this I'm gonna untie my boots. <laughs> hey Joe. What's up, Chris? So uh, great job. It's been a pleasure getting to know you and it's been a lot of fun watching the progress for you and the team. Can you uh <laughs> you turn his mic off? This silver fox can you uh, talk a little bit about some of the name iterations that you went through early on? <laughs> yeah. 
So Chris texted me, he said he was gonna ask this question. Yeah, we, we went from Metascore to IntelliDoc to TrueDoc to Prometica, which we almost got a CND on, because there's turns out the big hospital in Toledo. Um, to, to and, what, and I'll come clean here, Chris. So we were actually sitting back, and you can't see it, but there's a room over there, there's a bunch of conference rooms, and it was just me at the time, and, uh, and Chris and Micah, um, both from different respective companies, and I asked, I, I pulled them in, I said, hey, can you guys, I want to bounce something off you. They're like, what do you want to bounce off me? And I'm like, I'm looking for a unique name. And you know when you focus on something, you get so focused on something, you just get like creative block. And I couldn't figure out a name for what we were actually doing. And <laughs> I, I read this, I read this, of course, here you go, another billion idea, billion dollar idea here. I read this article about, you know, this trend in software, they're starting to name software personable names, right? Because it's a... So like, like Amy or Bob? Close. I went, I went to my, my wife's aunt, Aunt Nori, and, and I literally took it, I said, what do you think if we call the software Minori, right? It's a, it's a, it has a grandma feel to it, it's, it's unique, and you know, I could speak to it, and, and, and these guys were actually, I was just you know, spitballing, and they like, they, I don't know if they were joking or if they were serious, but they built it up to the point where I was confident, I'm like, yeah, we're on the right track here. I remember we brought in one of the, I think it was Blackwell, actually, he wasn't with us yet, and I, and I said, hey, I'm thinking about um, name of the company, Minori, and he's like, no. <laughs> he goes, and I'm like, no, and, he, and I, I sold it. He goes, I appreciate you selling it, but no. You can't name something. His point was, it's going to take a lot of money to build a brand around Minori, uh, as opposed to a very functional title of what we actually do, which is, turns out, prior off now. And he was right, because one of the biggest health systems that we're doing business with actually reached out to me on LinkedIn and said, hey, saw the name, love the name, big problem for us, want to figure out what's going on. So, so there you go, Chris. I told everybody I almost named it after my wife's grandma, or wife's great aunt, Nori, but uh, we ended up not doing that and ended on prior off now. Sounds like a wise choice. A <laughs> Couple of questions. Did you, um, <clears throat> did you solve your pricing model and how does it look now? And is there, do you currently work with all insurance companies or, your, or a handful, or can you address that yeah, a little bit? Yeah, of course. So yes, we, we've definitely fixed our pricing strategy. Um, one of the things that we did is, you know, look, we, we didn't hide the fact that we were a startup, so we wanted to try and de-risk these opportunities for these very big companies. So what we did is we, it was transactional in nature. So we said, hey, it's transactional. You're not going to pay us anything up front early on. Just use it, and we'll pay you per transaction. And we moved it from per approval to now per decision. So if it's approved, denied, not required, not eligible, not covered, we get paid on everything. We made sure that whatever status we had, we're getting paid on it, right? So we, we very early switched to that, and we've had you know, you know, very good uh, feedback, which is, you, know, you, know, you kind of looked, is everybody signing up really quick? Or, okay, I'm not charging enough. Or are you losing people as soon as you get the price? Well, you're charging too much. So, but as, as most people know, SaaS companies, that's one of the hardest nuts to crack is what the actual pricing model is gonna be. We're now moving to a point where we're starting to strengthen our terms. So for example, we started out purely transactional. Now we're moving to you know, guaranteed monthly minimums. Um, we're extending out from a year, to, you know, a year term contract to a two year contract, three year contract even. So we're starting to harden those terms, asking for three months in advance up front. Um, because we know we have happy customers, we have references, we can now start to do those things and actually have leverage in some of these deals. So, you know, from a, from a pricing perspective, at least for now, we've really kind of honed in on it. 
where we're going to go is, you know, we'll eventually look to add on additional services. We're already, you know, our integration strategy is providing a significant amount of value, so charging more for our integration strategy. You know, one, one of the greatest assets we have is our data. You know, there's nothing better than pure transactional data, being able to provide insights, both the payers and providers, relative to that data. You know, there's never kind of been a, you know, a, a big aggregation of prior authorization data on the medical side. So we're, you know, if we're able to hit, you know, hit, hit uh, scale, that data is going to be very, very powerful. Um, so we'll look at ways to monetize that as we go down the line here. And then from a payer perspective, that was one of the choices we made very early on, which was we were always going to support 100% of a provider's payers. Because if we went in and said, hey, you can only do 40% of your volume, that's a tough sell, right? It's not really fixing the problem. Um, so what we made the decision of is we were going to normalize the current processes of that payer. So for example, we, we connect to payers in multiple different ways. We sell and we partner with medical benefit management companies where we're able to do real-time determinations. So if we match the medical criteria within a provider's office to the criteria payers using, we can auto adjudicate it so we can get approval in real time. We also have the ability to do direct connects where we connect the uh, person within the provider's office who's submitting the authorization with the nurse from the payers actually reviewing it. So instead of having a intake person build up a, you know, literally uh, a stack of papers for a nurse to review, we have normalized the data and we've shot it directly into their queue. So they're responding back and forth electronically. Uh, and then in some cases, you know, a provider is going to come in and it's a small payer who's not interested in adopting some new technology. So we actually uh, normalize e-faxing. So if, if we don't have a connection, oftentimes the lowest common denominator is e-fax. Um, so a payer will you know, enter in some random payer, and we're able to generate that particular form and map it to that form and on the back end fax it out. But the provider has no clue, right? Everything's electronically, everything's going through the portal. We've just normalized the experience. And in our model, you know, those, those small payers are the long tail. You know, we can get 80% of the market with only 25 integrations. And, and a lot of that 25 can be done through benefit management companies who payers outsource authorizations to. So we get one benefit management contract. You know, for example, we have the largest benefit management company in the U.S. And with that one deal, we have over 100 commercial payers that we get access to electronically. So the, the way we connect to payers is nothing more than an efficiency play for us. You know, we wanted to get out there fast. We knew our costs would be a little bit higher because we weren't, you know, going to the payers and selling them. But now that we're starting to take a few steps, we're starting to create value, we're going to those high volume payers and starting to you know, offer them more efficient ways for us to, to give them data. And we have leverage because if they don't, we're just continuing to pile on their facts, which has a large amount of cost to them. So that's what I was talking early on. We've really found our sweet spot, which is Switzerland, right? We're just using prior authorizations as a beachhead to give us the right to be able to connect the payer and the provider more efficiently. I've got two questions. Uh, the first is you said you were doing through 100 iterations in 100 days. If you were doing that with me, I could see like a lot of burnout on the customer side. Uh, how did you deal with that, like, that con like, do it, dealing with that constant iterations? And then I don't think you've really addressed, and I don't, think, I don't know much about your software, but do you integrate your uh, prior auth now with hospital systems such as Epic, Cerner, Allscripts, and how have you, how have you dealt with that integration? Yeah, so, um, well, the way, the way I was able to do the iterations is we certainly didn't use the same customer. Because of my partner, Amol, I mean, he, he's, a, he's a physician, but he's a very social physician, so we had a lot of contacts. 
So for example, I asked them, hey, could you help us get an orthopedic one? Lobbed a call over the executive director. Next thing you know, we were in there. So we had an advantage over most in the fact that there is a ton of physicians around town and there's a ton that know my partner. So he was able to open up doors for me. So I, could, I absolutely agree with you. If you take 100 iterations to the same customer in 100 days, you're going to burn them out. But you know, from our perspective, we just had a huge amount of people willing to sit with us. And, and one of the things that I got nailed on early on, right, um, even from Calvin over here personally, why would we invest? You don't have a healthcare background, right? I mean, that, I, I truly don't have a long history of healthcare. But it turned out to be the greatest advantage because I could not make an assumption. I couldn't sit in a room, make an assumption. I had to go out and validate everything, right? So the very fact that I wanted to get something done, I had to go out to different practices. And if you go to one or two, then you start to get the bias for those one to two people. But if you go to 50, then you start to get a broad view of what you know, the market's actually supposed to be like. So, or you're building a product for more than just you know, your handful of beta customers. Um, so we, again, we were just lucky in the fact that big enough problem and somebody to help get access to it. We, we made, to address your second question, we made a conscious decision early on that we didn't want to require EMR integration because the moment you require EMR integration, your sales cycle halts. You just, you just come to a screeching stop. You get IT involved, now you're, you're fighting for resources and you're fighting for, you know, my project's more prioritization, higher priority than your project. And what we said is, if we, could, if we could provide a product that could drive an ROI without integration, then we could come back and say, hey, we want to integrate now, and it'll be the easiest sell in the entire world. I'm going to automate your data flow into our application, right? We have, we have IT people fighting to get on our project because they know it's a slam dunk. We've already proved out the ROI without integration. So we come back and say, now we're going to automate the flow of data from your EMR into our application. It's, it, it takes them about 0.2 seconds to realize, wow, the ROI in a connected world is significant. So we have you know, very little resistance from the CFO, we have very little resistance from RevCycle, and we typically have a very motivated IT team because they've already seen it working and driving value without connected. Everybody can easily see how quickly in a connected world the value that we can drive there. We also, so we're, we're very data-driven in terms of we know our numbers. So if you get Epic, Cerner, and all scripts, you have over 60% of the hospitals. So we focused on those three. We have more advanced technology relative to those three, so we've partnered, it's not public yet, but we've partnered with a very well-known cl clinical decision support company that has their evidence-based criteria already in those EMRs, and we're creating a, a more modern workflow that's gonna allow us to do a lot more automation relative to the type of procedure you select, to whether it requires authorization, to how we actually get the clinical data out of the EMR. So. If you ask, you know, from a product perspective, where are we really focused over the next three to six months? It's on EMR integration, being able to automate the data flow in a lot of the big places we're in, as well as, you know, being that filter for both providers and payers. Not letting them work on a prior authorization that doesn't require authorization. Not letting them work on an authorization for a procedure that's not a covered benefit. Not letting them work on a procedure or a prior authorization if the patient doesn't have insurance creating the modern workflow to be able to filter out that stuff and let them focus on the things that require authorization. When and how did you start addressing the legal and health data standards uh, given your, your lean validation model and the prototype model? Um, when did you guys start looking into HIPAA and maybe FDA clearance and, and how did that fit within the prototyping? 
Yeah, so um, when the prototyping, it was just all dummy data. So early on, we didn't, we didn't think about it for two seconds because we just created the data out of thin air. So, but we were thinking about, from a strategy perspective, how we were going to deal with it during that time because we knew very quickly, once we turned it on, that that's obviously a big concern. This is probably one of the best things that we ever did was we actually partnered with a consulting company who they're AHA approved, um, which hospitals love, Clearwater Compliance. And we, had, we, we actually came in and we signed off a project with them very early on. So we just had raised concept money at the time, which was you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, not millions. So a very small amount of data. And we hired them to come in because the HIPAA is, is, is pretty straightforward from a technical perspective, right? It's, t it's typically a, a checklist. The difficult part is the policies and procedures of the actual business itself and the amount of writing and the amount of time it would take, if we tried to take that on ourselves, we would never be able to do it. So we, we actually outsourced that right about the time when we were building the actual product and we got policies and procedures in place then because we knew within months that we would turn this thing on and we'd have data, data flowing through. So we, you know, one of, the, one of the early things we did is we got that company in, they wrote the policies and procedures, but we changed strategy so many times, you know, we had to go back and redo them again. Right? And the nice thing about it is, I mean, we got our original policies and procedures in place for, I think, 35 grand. They got us kind of just the, and, and what they told us is, you know, having a true policy and procedure for how you actually conduct the business is better than having policies and procedures you don't actually follow. So you don't have to go crazy because you're trying to comply with some, you know, large health systems, uh, healthcare IT review. It's better from a regulatory perspective to just document and process how you currently do business. You'll be perceived as farther along than as opposed to if you write these elaborate policies and procedures that there's no chance a company of our size would be able to follow. So they were really good in guiding us on how much was just enough and how much was too much. Um, we're now starting to go back. We're, you know, I know we've got a lot of security things coming up to get different certifications that are gonna allow us to, to continue to harden our stance uh, in this area. I, I, I will give a shout out to um, you know, our security team, Ted and Granville. They've done a phenomenal job. We've went through uh, healthcare IT reviews from some of the largest systems in the country and we've gotten through them. So those guys have done a phenomenal job at getting our system ready and really understanding the roadmap, right? Because that's, that's obviously not an area of my expertise and leaning on them and helping, you know, letting them guide the ship on what we should do there. And then uh, we take it very seriously, in fact, we had visitors in the other day and we, you know, because of HIPAA, we have to log all visitors. And of course, it was one of my visitors I was bringing in and they didn't sign in on the iPad when they walked in and Granville back there about spear tackled them to get them to actually sign in. So it, it, it definitely is about, you know, thinking in advance, but, but also, you know, knowing where you need help. And we just knew very early on that Clearwater was the right choice for us because we weren't going to be, the, the amount of time and the opportunity costs lost on writing those ourselves was just too significant. Yeah, don't go to the prior auth now offices uh, not looking your best because they will take your picture. <laughs> yes, we and, do. And it will, it will get published in places that, you know, you want to look your best. We, we've gotten complaints about the angle of the camera, so it, it's a bad angle, but nonetheless, we are compliant. So I have two questions. Um, you mentioned you hired a person to oversee culture early on. Um, what did their day-to-day -day activities look then versus now, and what does your engineering team look like? Yeah, um, good question. So um, and Hannah was the person we brought on to, to manage the culture. And quite frankly, I, I remember you know, 
talking with her early on and she's like, well, what would I do? And I'm like, you would manage the culture. She's like, well, what does that mean? I'm like, you know, I'm not really sure. But what we knew is that we wanted to create these values and it wasn't just culture because we were creating a culture of accountability. So not only were we, were we creating values, um, we were also providing 30 day goals or, or excuse me, quarterly goals, right? So, you know, meeting with each employee one-on-one -on -one every single week. So early on, we had one-on-one -on -one meetings with every employee every single week. You know, when we brought uh, Hannah on, I stepped back and let Hannah do, you know, the weekly one-on-ones. I went to once a month. But it was important that we have somebody meet with them every week because, quite frankly, things move so fast. If you don't get that insight, you're going to overlook a lot of other things. Small things will be pent up and they turn into big things, right? So we created the, you know, accountability where we were tracking quarterly goals. You know, it was also about you know, just constantly reinforcing those things. We had, you know, on the website, if you go to our team section, you know, yes, we're solving a serious problem, but we tend to, you know, to take things not so seriously and creating that culture early on. So, you know, a lot of it was, we knew that that was going to be a portion of our job, but that was no way all of it. She quickly became an account manager, to which now we were actually moving culture to somebody else. In fact, we hired uh, somebody else, Petra up front, who's going to be helping us with the culture, you know, going forward, and it's transitioning more into an account management role. So early on, it, it made sense to have, it wasn't a full-time job, but we knew we needed a utility to backfill some of the other areas. But there was a good, you know, half time spent, and especially when you start to get to 10, 15, 20 people, you know, the one-on-ones, the, you know, con consistently reiterating those values so that people, you know, don't lose sight of them is a full-time job. And it's something that we continually to backfill because it's an important position for our company, especially as we grow and hire more and more, you know, going forward. Was there a second question? Engineering team. Great. So one of the things that we did early on is when we raised our seed round, we immediately beefed up the engineering team significantly. In fact, we did it so much that I think we had 10 people in the company and seven of them were engineers. And even today, we're a team of 22, and I believe it's 13 or 14 on the engineering side. But it made sense for us because of the fact that we weren't, we didn't, business development and sales was not a problem for us. Remember, we had signed contracts very early on that we were trying to figure out how to execute on. So bringing on a sales problem to exacerbate my problem of we don't have a product didn't make sense. So we very quickly geared up the engineering team significantly. So we've got my favorite hire just selfishly was we have a, a full-time UI person that all that, David, I don't think David's here, but it was great for us because all he did was focus on the front end UI. So, but we've got, we're finally at the point now, we're splitting off the application of three different teams. We've got DevOps now. We made our first uh, a DevOps hire, which Max is out there. Granville heads up the DevOps side for us. So, you know, making sure that, you know, we're able to deploy and create automation uh, around our deployments is key. And then, you know, getting really senior people in, because early on we had, I call them data clogs, right? We had you know, two people that built the application, and as we brought on more people, it was very difficult to fully utilize them because they didn't architect it, so they weren't aware of how everything worked. And you know, doing one thing affect multiple different areas of the application. So you know, being able to split out into teams now to focus on specific aspects of the application have been you know, very, very key for us. And we've got you know, really good leadership in that, uh, in that field now. So Drew's here, who's currently manager of the, uh, of the dev team, you know, creating process, right? How do you have a product process and how do you translate business to technical, right? Especially when we're very open air office and things fly in, right? It has, you need that translation layer to be able to, 
take the crazy things I say in a meeting and, and package them up so they don't look so scary from a, from a dev perspective, right? We're still refining that, but you know, that, that, that's something that you know, every business challenges, especially when you have a CEO who likes to get out there and talk and sell like I do. We rely on great people to make it actionable. So you know, we're continually to, to, to grow that area, and, and we're, we're lucky in the fact that we got some phenomenal engineers who have you know, made a really solid product for us. So the people came to see the V-neck tee, so um, we can be appreciative for that. Please help me thank Joe for coming and joining us and sharing his experience. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Startup Brand Columbus event podcast. We will be back next month with more entrepreneurial experiences and insights. Thanks again to our lead partners, AWH and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com forward slash Columbus to see our future events and to see videos of past ones. Until next time, keep grinding.